1 through 26. We are moving toward the end of this chapter, as you can see. And we will be finished the book of Matthew in about three weeks, three or four weeks. Okay, so what happens is Judas has betrayed Jesus. The Sanhedrin has tried Jesus. And now he's being transferred to Roman jurisdiction. The Jewish courts have tried him in their court system, found him guilty, and now he's being transferred to the Roman court system. So I'm going to divide our lesson today this way, verses 1 and 2. Formal charges are leveled against Jesus. Okay, then verses 3 through 10. Judas has pangs of conscience over what he's done in betraying Jesus. And then verses 11 through 26, Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. So let's look at the formal charges, okay? This is Matthew 27, verse 1. When the morning came, and remember they had this trial in the middle of the night, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. This is the culmination of Jesus' trial. The sun has now come up, and uh, the night before, they found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. And that's punishable by death according to Jewish law, but guess what? It doesn't hold water in the Roman court system. So they have to come up with a formal charge that meets Roman standards for capital punishment. So that's what they're doing here. They're, they are trying to they plot against Jesus to put him to death under the Roman laws. And so that's what you need to realize. Okay. And then it says, verse 2, And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, the governor. So there's a transfer of the prisoner from one jurisdiction to the other. Now, in order to understand what's happening here, we need some background. You know, the Roman Empire controlled the entire known world at that time. When they would come in and conquer a land, or just march in and take over a land, they would set up a Roman official over that territory. So when they came in and they conquered the Jewish state, that we call today Palestine, uh, they put a Roman governor over that area, and he ruled that area with an iron hand. And up until the time that Pilate has been chosen, there have been four other governors over this region. In 20-some years, four different governors, and now Pilate's the fifth. So guess what? Governors don't last. Not in this region. These are tough characters, these governors. These aren't like governors of states in the United States. Okay. Pilate is an elitist. That means he's a very wealthy man. He's part of the equestrian class of Roman citizens. That's one level below the senator staff. So this is an elite person. Okay. And he has been appointed to this region, and his job is to do Caesar's bidding and to carry out the agenda of the Roman government in this little part of the Roman Empire called Israel. He's in charge of finances, making sure that you know, money is raised. He's in charge of uh, overseeing civil and criminal trials when it gets to a certain level that the lower courts can't handle. He handles it. He is in charge of building projects, 
keeping the law in order. And this man is ruthless. Whatever it takes, he'll do. He's a violent person. There's, it's not beyond politics to kill 20 people just like that. Now just kill them, slaughter them, get rid of them. That's just how he operates. And the scripture talks about him being a violent man in different places. And so do secular sources say that. And every Passover season, he comes from his headquarters in Caesarea, which is on the shoreline of the Mediterranean, and he comes over eastward into Jerusalem, and he's there during the Passover season because Passover is always a time of turmoil in the city of Jerusalem among the Jews because Passover for a Jew means deliverance from Egypt. And now, guess what? The Jews are under another tyrant, Caesar, and when they get together, they think about how we got delivered in the Exodus under one tyrant way back when. They think, maybe we should try to overthrow this government. So Pilate's always on hand to make sure that the crowd is controlled. Okay? Now, this is not a good assignment. He's appointed governor over this region, which is the furthest point east in the Roman Empire. In other words, it's right on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. Beyond Israel to the east is barbarian territory. Wild territory that hasn't been conquered. So who wants to be out here on this eastern edge of the Roman Empire? And Pilate has put, been put there, and he's not a happy trooper. Okay? Now, another thing you need to realize is that when Rome took over a territory, their own people couldn't run the show you had to tap into local sources and use natives to run the local affairs. Native elites. For example, when we invaded Iraq, uh, we didn't just put people in all the offices, we had to use Iraqis you know, to, to run offices and the bureaucracy. And when Rome came in, they had to use the native elites. And so when they took over Israel, they used the Jewish leaders who were already in place, requiring them to pledge their allegiance to the Roman Empire. And the highest Jewish official is the high priest, Caiaphas. And Jesus has been brought before Caiaphas. The high priest, even though he's a Jewish ruler, is appointed by Rome. Okay? He does Rome's bidding the same as Pilate does Rome's bidding. Okay? And uh, so he's the highest official, and he and Pilate are allies. They're working in tandem. They work together for one goal. Keep peace and order. Uh, maintain the status quo. Don't let things get out of hand. So that when you think of Caiaphas and you think who's Jewish, and you think of Pilate who you think is, who is Roman, don't think them as enemies. They're in cahoots together. You know, you pat my back and I'll pat yours. You need to understand that. It's very important that you get this. Because when the high priest delivers Jesus to Pilate, it's understood, based on their relationship, that Jesus will die. In other words, they're in this thing together. If Pilate, if Caiaphas delivers Jesus to Pilate, Pilate will put him to death. So don't get the idea that Pilate's trying to free Jesus. 
Some commentaries, oh, he wanted to free Jesus. He just couldn't free Jesus. No, they're in it together, and Caiaphas sees Jesus as a threat to stability, and guess what? Pilate, how Pilate sees Jesus. The exact same way. If this local leader says this guy is a threat, he could cause a riot, Pilate sees him as a threat. If he's delivered to Pilate to be executed, it's a given that Pilate will execute him. Okay, so you have to understand that. There's a glitch in that. There'll be a point when Pilate has second thoughts, but you need to understand from the get-go that Pilate and Caiaphas have the same agenda and Pilate is going to rubber stamp the formal charge brought against Jesus and Jesus will be executed, there's no doubt about it. And anybody that lived in that day and saw what was happening would know it. Okay? So, you understand that? Okay, so Jesus has been transferred to this jurisdiction. Now, what we have, beginning in verse 3, is a case of a of conscience. And this deals with Judas Iscariot. Look at verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he, that Jesus, had been condemned, was remorseful. And thought back, and brought back, rather, the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Uh, when Judas realizes that Jesus is going to die, and he's responsible for it. He realizes what he's done. He has this twinge of conscience. Now, verses 3 through 10, by the way, is a parenthesis. Okay? It's not necessarily in chronological order. In fact, you could go from verse 2 to verse 11 without skipping a beat. So this is a parenthesis that Matthew puts in here because he wants to tell you what's going on with Judas Iscariot. So we don't know exactly when this happens. Okay? But we know that it does happen. Okay? So notice he feels guilty over this. And in verse 3, or verse 2, it says he's verse 3 rather, it says he was remorseful. And so he goes to the priest. Now there's a lot of times people say, well, what's the difference between what Judas did and what Peter did? And I've tried to think about that this week. And I want to tell you the three things. The three things I think are different. Number one, what Judas did was premeditated. What Peter did was a spur-of-the-moment cowardice. Right? We've all been in that situation where you're caught off guard. That's one difference. The second difference is that he's remorseful. And remorseful falls short of repentance. You can be sorry, but you're not repentant. Peter's repentant. Judas is just remorseful. And then third, Judas confesses to the wrong person. He goes to the priest and says, I'm sorry, I've sinned. You have to say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. <laughs> Not the priest. And Peter's cry is out to God, and Judas is out to the high priest. So that's very interesting. So now we get the reaction of the chief priest. Look what they say at the end of verse 4. They said, what's that to us? What do we care a deal's a deal. You can't get out of this now. You can't turn around and say, well, I don't want to do this. This isn't our concern. And look what he says right at the end of verse 4. You see to it. I mean, don't tell us that you've sinned. That's your problem. 
You deal with the situation. We're not doing anything. We kept our end of the bargain, and that's it. So then it says, he threw down, verse 5, the pieces of silver in the temple. Which seems to indicate that these chief priests at that time were also in the temple. And uh, that's why we know it's not necessarily in chronological order, because they were in Caiaphas' house. He throws down the silver in the temple, and he departed, and he went out, and he hanged himself. So he doesn't want to have this money. He just said, I'm sort of canceling out everything. The deal, the end of my life, and all of this. But the chief priest took the silver pieces, and he says, now what are we going to do with this money? He says, it's not lawful to put it in the treasury. We're not going to do that. Can't use this dirty money for sacred purposes. So he goes on to say, because, and he tells us why, because they are the price of blood. This is blood money. Can't use blood money for sacred purposes. Now, interesting here, the chief priests are willing to keep the letter of the law. Don't use blood money for sacred purposes. See, they keep all the purification laws, the outward purification laws, which is very interesting. Uh, but they're not concerned about Judas' soul. They're not concerned about the tor turmoil this human being is going through. Yeah, you deal with it, you know? So, they're willing to keep the letter of the law, but they're not concerned over Judas's moral dilemma. He goes out and kills himself. Do you think they ever have a twin to guilt? <laughs> Maybe we were responsible? We're in cahoots with him? You don't see any of that here. And then verse 7 says, And they consulted together. What are we going to do about this money? And so here's what they did. And they bought with them, those 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field to bury strangers in. Uh, that means foreigners, Gentiles who happen to be traveling through the region, who die. You have a heart attack and you die in Jerusalem. Where are we going to bury these people? We don't even know where they come from. Well, they took that 30 pieces of silver and they bought this piece of property to bury dirty Gentiles there. Unclean Gentiles. And the piece of property that they bought was called the potter's field. That was a place where potters threw the shards of their broken pottery. Just an old field that couldn't be used for anything else. Just like a garbage dump where people just toss broken things. And that's where they tossed their broken pottery. Verse 8 says, Therefore the field has been called the field of blood to this day. So notice what they do. They go out and buy a piece of property and they turn it into a cemetery and then they give the cemetery a name. Bloody Acres Cemetery. Can you imagine that? Bloody Acres. Sounds like a nice place to be buried. <laughs> and notice what it says at the end of verse 8. It's been called that to this day. Well, when's Matthew writing? He's writing about 50 years later. That cemetery is still in existence. He says, and they still call it that old Bloody Acres. It's still around. Hadn't been filled up yet. So, then verse 9 says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, They took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, 
whom they of the children of Israel priced. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now this is a quote from Zechariah chapter 11 and Jeremiah chapter 32, a combined passage. And when Matthew retells the story, he recalls those two verses. And as Matthew's custom is, uh, he uses that word fulfilled throughout his gospel. He sees these events as fulfilling uh, inspired prophecies of the past. And he quotes two prophecies. He said, and this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. This was bound to happen. So that is Judas's case of conscience. Now we come to Jesus before Pilate. Okay, verse 11. He's been transferred. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, for the first time, we discover what the official charge is. That's the charge. Jesus is the king of the Jews. That means that he is claiming to be the ruler of the Jews. Not appointed by Rome. He claims to be the God appointed him. That is a threat to the Roman government. That is a threat to Caiaphas, who claims to rule this area. And so here is the formal charge, is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Okay? Self-appointed Jewish ruler. And I want to show you two things. Just If you're in chapter 27, notice in verse 37, you discover that that is the formal charge. That's the one that they've chosen. It says, they put over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's the charge. Not appointed by Rome, therefore he is a usurper, he is a threat, he is seditious, he is, it's like me saying, I'm starting, we're seceding from the Union, Texas, and I'm the new governor, or president or ruler of a new country, the United States of Texas. Well, what do you think? That How would that go over with President Obama, the United States Senate, the House of Representatives, and government officials in the state of Texas? You think that's going to, am I a threat? I mean, I'm a kook. They probably believe he's a kook, but he's a kook who's got people following him. How many following him? Thousands follow him from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And when he walks in town, they say, Hosanna, Hosanna! He's got followers. This guy is dangerous. And I want to show you something else in Matthew, which lends credence to this. Look over at Matthew chapter 2. This is how Matthew opens his gospel. And when you get there, you know this story. It's about the birth of Jesus. The wise men come from the east to Herod. And when you get to Matthew 2, look down at verse 2. Look what they say to Herod. They said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? See, now that's the title that the wise men have. They said, we've seen his star, we've seen this... You know, we're from Persia. We've heard all these prophecies from Daniel the prophet that there's going to come one who sets up a kingdom and all the other kingdoms are going to be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7. 
This is what our ancestry has taught us. We know about that book. And we've been following a star, and we believe he's been born. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? Which means, of course, that Rome will no longer be in charge of Israel if Jesus is king of the Jews. Herod's going to be thrown out of office. Look what happens in verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was troubled. You see that? This is a troubling word to politicians. You're out of office. Somebody's trying to take your place. And he's God's choice, not Rome's choice. All of Jerusalem was with him. They were troubled too. You see? The priest, scribes of the people together, see? he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Down in verse 6, you see a prophecy uh, that Matthew quotes. Right in the middle it says, uh, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. So here it's announced prophetically in a way that God has a ruler who's going to replace all the other Jewish, Jewish rulers. When he sets up the kingdom in Israel, Rome's going to be thrown out. And now, at the end of Jesus' life, it's this very charge uh, that is attached to his crime. And therefore, it is a capital crime. It represents a threat to Rome. Rome has not authorized him to be the king. He's a usurper, a troublemaker, a revolutionary, a zealot, whatever you want to call him. That's what they think he is. That's how they are interpreting the phrase king of the Jews. And therefore... His crime is punishable by death. Does that make sense? That's why I say, don't think that college just say, ah, that's not such a big deal. We want to let this innocent man go. Hey, this is, this is a big deal. If he lets this guy go, and he's right, and Jesus is a zealot who's trying to overthrow the Rome, Rome and he causes riots in the street, and Pollock can't get it under control, that's Paul's head on the platter. They're going to let that happen. So now look at verse 12. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, well, first of all, at the end of verse 11, Pilate said, uh, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, It is as you say. So Jesus does not deny it. He actually affirms that that's who he is. He's not the king the way they think, but it doesn't matter. He's being charged with being king of the Jews according to their understanding. He says, it is as you say, I am king of the Jews. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, they chirped in, he answered nothing. He answered nothing. Silence in a legal system is an admission of guilt, especially under the Roman legal system. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things I testify against you? But he answered them not one word. So that the governor marveled. He was amazed. Why is he amazed? Because when people are standing up and they've been accused of a capital crime, they think for their lives. They plead they are innocent or they plea bargain to get a shorter sentence. He's amazed that Jesus says nothing in light of these charges. That is not the way things are usually done. 
So here we have two men representing two kingdoms. We have Pilate representing Rome. We have Jesus representing the kingdom of God. We have Pilate who uses force to carry out Rome's will. We have Jesus who operates on faith to carry out God's will. We have Rome and its vision for the world. And we have Jesus representing God's alternative vision for the world. And there they are, standing facing each other. Verse 15. Now at the feast, this would be the feast of Passover, unleavened bread, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they, whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Christ, the Anointed One. Now, what's happening here is something that happens every year in the United States of America on New Year's Eve, when the President of the United States pardons certain people. And all year long, there are individuals who are trying to get maybe their friend whoever it is who's been found guilty of some federal crime to be let go on New Year's Eve to get the President of the United States to pardon them. You're going to see that happen New Year's Eve this year. And there'll be a list of 8 or 10 or 12 or 20 people that President Obama pardons. And one of them will be very controversial. No doubt about that. Well, Pilate practices... You know, someone said all of them. Pilate practices... has the same practice, only... When he does it, in this particular Jewish ter territory, it is on Passover. Why? Because there's always trouble. <laughs> and he figures, I'll release somebody. That will sort of smooth things out a little bit. Okay. And by the way, when they released a prisoner like this, when the governor pardoned the prisoner, <laughs> this was just another means of dominating and controlling the people. That's all it was. We'll do you a favor, but guess what? If we do you a favor, then you are obligated to us, right? If President Obama pardons, you know, Don Wharton's friend, who's just been put in jail for a white-collar crime, guess what? Don Wharton sort of beholding. Don't think that pardons are being nice guys when you do that. You're not being a nice guy. You're being a dominator. You're doing a favor, and they're obligated to you, and therefore you have the upper hand over both of those people. So, some commentators say that Pilate really wants to release Jesus. He says, who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? Now, that could be, but I just don't see it. I take the opposite view. Okay? Why would he let Jesus go if Jesus has brought if, G, if the high priest has brought Jesus up on charges that are worthy of execution, why would he just let him go right then? That would be sort of like double-crossing the high priest. That doesn't make sense to me. Hey, for a long time, who did these people want to be pardoned? Barabbas. They worked out a deal already. That's who they wanted, Barabbas. Pilate knows how bad Barabbas is. He doesn't know how bad Jesus is. What happens if he lets Jesus go and Jesus causes a riot? Oh, now he's really in trouble. And people would say, ah, oh, we always wanted Barabbas to begin with. 
So uh, he wants to let Barabbas go. And this is confirmed. All he wants is the high priest to confirm that. So he says, which one do you want, Barabbas or, or Jesus? Watch this. Why did he say that? Because he knew. You see this in verse 18? He knew they had handed him over because of envy. He knows, not, he knows the high priest is afraid of Jesus. He knows the high priest isn't going to say, ah, oh, yeah, let Jesus go. He knows that. He knows beforehand who they're going to say. And who are they going to say to let go? Barabbas. They're not going to choose Jesus. They turned him over because of envy. They're not going to now let him go. That's not who they're going to choose. But then something very unexpected happens that Pilate isn't counting on. So up to this point, everything has just been orchestrated. I'm convinced of that. But now we have this wrench thrown into the machinery. Look at verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife said to him, she comes up and she whispers in his ear and she says, Honey, have nothing to do with this just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Mrs. Pollitt has had a tormenting nightmare. And in this nightmare, she sees all these things happening as a result of Pollitt putting Jesus to death. She calls Jesus, in verse 19, a just man. Doesn't mean innocent. Don't think of innocent. She has no idea who Jesus is. He's only been in town a couple days. Mrs. Pollock's not a Jewish follower of anybody. So she doesn't know if, he's, if the evidence is that he's innocent or guilty. So just there doesn't mean that in this case, I don't think. It simply means that he is, when he says, I'm the Messiah, he really believes that he's not trying to deceive anybody. He genuinely believes that he is the real king of Israel. Through the dream, she may be convinced that he is too. She sees that if her husband goes against that, they're going to be facing trouble. Some people actually believe that Mrs. Pollock's dream was a divine revelation given to her by God. Could be. The Egyptian Coptic Church has named Mrs. Pollock a saint. In that church, it's saint whatever name, they've given her some name, I don't know what that name is, but she's a saint. So, Mrs. Pollock wants her husband to wash his hands of this whole affair. Because she sees trouble. Now, Pollock faces a dilemma. Now, he has to make a decision. Is he going to listen to the high priest, his political crony, and satisfy his desires? Or is he going to listen to his wife on the fact that an omen has been given? How does he satisfy both of them? Is that possible to satisfy both your wife and your political crony? When the high priest gets wind of what she wants her husband to do, look what he does in verse 20. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So he, so these chief priests get the crowd you know motivate the crowd and gets them up in arms. Verse 21 the government answered and said which of the two do you want me to release? They said Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas Barabbas 
And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? He knows what they're going to say. He's no Dumbo. He knows what the, What are they going to say? Yeah, crucify him. We don't want this guy. And you say, well, how in the world is it that on Palm Sunday everybody said Hosanna, and on Friday they say crucify? Because the crowd that said Hosanna on Palm Sunday was the crowd that came with Jesus from Galilee up north. They were his followers who lined the streets and put out their robes. This is the Jerusalem crowd here. These are the people who are benefiting from a relationship with the high priest. He has gotten a crowd together and brought them. This has been a secret trial, remember. He's now been brought this crowd together to stand before Pilate. And they say, we want him crucified. Verse 23. So we have this mob spirit here. And I love this. He said, let him be crucified. Um, then Pilate said, well, what, what evil has he done? And notice how he's doing this. What evil has he done? Uh, but they cried uh, louder and they said, let him be crucified. They keep repeating that over and over again. Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was about was rising, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood. And some translations say of this just person. Other translations don't have the word just in there. But I'm innocent of the blood of this person. So uh, he's going to be able to satisfy both his wife. And the high priest. It's the greatest political move ever. I wish I could satisfy my wife and my colleagues at the same time. When they have different opinions. He could say to his wife, well, I did everything that I could to let him go. I'm not responsible. I'm just going to wash my hands. I tried it all, honey. I'm not responsible. They just kept saying, crucify. What, what could I do? And at the same time, he satisfies the urging and the wants of the priest. So I think it was a great political move myself. I could be wrong, but I just want you to take a take a look at that. And then look at the end of verse, think about that. Look at the end of verse 4. He says to the crowd, actually to the chief priest, you, know, you see to it. Did you ever see that before? Did you ever hear that phrase before? Look back at verse 4. What did the chief priest say to Judas Iscariot? How you take care of it? That's not our problem. Guess what he does? Hey, that's not my problem. You take care of it. Same words. Sort of interesting, isn't it? Washes his hands of the situation. And also in verse 24, notice the word blood there. Do you see that? Did you ever see blood before? You saw that back in 6 and 7, didn't you? Chief priest took the silver pieces. Not law for us. Because it's the price of blood, right? Verse 8. Field of blood, blood money. See? Blood, you see that? Which is sort of interesting. And then look what happened in verse 25. And all the people said, His blood be on us. Okay, we'll take responsibility. His blood be on us and our children. They call basically a curse down upon themselves if they're wrong. 
Now, it's interesting. What did they say there in verse 25? His blood be upon us. Do you see that? Let me just show you one other thing before I close out. Look over at Acts chapter 5. His blood be upon us. See if this is right. Acts 5, and look at 28. This is where John and Peter are being tried, and we have the council speaking. The high priest speaks at the end of verse 27. You see that? It's 527. The high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's what? You're trying to blame us for this. You're trying to bring this man's blood on us. Well, but guess what? Back in Matthew's gospel, what did they say? His blood's on us and our children. They took the responsibility. Now they're trying to not take the responsibility. It's very interesting, isn't it? I just thought I'd show you that. So let's finish this up. Okay, look at verse 26. This is Matthew 27, 26. All the people answered and said, His blood's on us. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, that's the flogging, which often killed people, even before they were crucified, he delivered him to be crucified. Now there's that phrase, delivered again. Because what you have in this book, is you have Jesus, Judas delivers Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. You have the Sanhedrin who deliver Jesus over to Pilate. And now you have Pilate who delivers Jesus over to be crucified. And yet, guess what? Matthew wants us to know that ultimately it's God who has delivered Jesus over to die. And it's His will. It's his will that Jesus dies. That's what the Garden of Gethsemane is all about. Not my will, but yours be done. Matthew's audience knows that that cry, let his blood be on us and our children, let us be cursed, that judgment has fallen on the nation of Israel. The temple's been destroyed. Israel's been smattered to smithereens. The Jews have been scattered in 70 A.D. And the judgment has fallen upon them. Pilate, in 36 AD, is recalled by Rome, kicked out of office. The same year, Caiaphas, the high priest, is removed from office because Pilate and him were working hand in hand. And God's kingdom has come down through the power of the Holy Spirit and now resides in the church. And this was all God's will. And sometimes you know something? It's not fun when you're in God's will. To say, well, Pilate did this, Judas did this, the people were responsible for this. Ultimately, God's responsible, and it's God's will. And when you're going through it, sometimes God's will involves suffering, and it's not a fun thing to go through. It's only in hindsight. Sometimes it's years later when you look back and say, ah, boy, I'm sure glad that it did happen to me. That was God's will. If that wouldn't have happened, this wouldn't have happened. You know? So we can't understand uh, 
see God's will clearly when we're going through it. And some of you have been betrayed by your friends. Some of you have been persecuted by people that you love. And you're going through God's will. And uh, you don't understand it all. But God has a purpose for it. It's not his immediate will, but it is his ultimate will. And he has a purpose for it. And when you come out on the other side, just like Jesus did three days later, you'll look back and you realize that you were right in the center of God's will, even in the midst of that punishment. Next week, we look at the crucifixion of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your, your word. <clears throat> Help us to realize that uh, this was an evil plan, an attempt to kill Jesus and, this, and silence his movement. And And that's what it looked like on the surface. But if the people that day could have pulled the curtain back and looked into heaven, they would have seen that you were smiling that whole time. That your will was being accomplished because it was through Christ's death and resurrection that you were going to establish the church and give us the spirit of the kingdom.